0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: The special counsel is asking about yet another Oval Office meeting involving Donald Trump. The lead starts right now. A new CNN exclusive, what did Donald Trump say behind closed doors? The Oval Office meeting about election security that has the attention of the special counsel. The brand new reporting you'll see only on CNN. Plus, see you in court, Mr. President. The strong response from the governor of Texas as a battle over floating barriers at the border heats up. And protests and clashes stretch well into the night as Israel's hard right government overhauls its Supreme Court's powers. Welcome to the lead, everyone. I'm Bianca Golodryka in for Jake Tapper. We start today in our law and justice lead with the CNN exclusive. We've learned special counsel Jack Smith is scrutinizing yet another Oval Office meeting as part of his investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Sources tell CNN prosecutors have asked former U.S. officials about a February 2020 meeting in which former President Donald Trump praised the work done to secure the upcoming presidential election and the expansion of the use of paper ballots and security around vote tallies. Now, that's a stark contrast to the voter conspiracy theories Trump publicly promoted just weeks later and more aggressively in the run-up to the November election.
0: I don't want to see a crooked election. This election will be the most rigged election in history. They know it's it's going to be fraudulent. It's going to be fraud all over the place. I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots and the ballots are a disaster.
1: The revelation of this meeting comes as the investigation appears to be in its final stages with the D.C. grand jury scheduled to meet this week. So let's bring in the team with the exclusive reporting, CNN's Sean Lingus and Evan Perez. Sean, let's start with you. What happened at this February 2020 meeting?
2: Biana, there was a lot that happened. Uh, I mean, it was it was an election security briefing. Uh, U.S. officials walked through the ways in which uh, the election system was secure um, in telling Trump about uh, mail-in ballots, uh, security audits for, for voting, and a, a range of, of, of ways in which the election would be protected. Uh, and and Trump, uh, according to our sources, even suggested uh, he was so impressed by the work done to secure the elections that he even suggested doing a press conference uh, where he could take credit for that work. Uh, so this is, as you say, a contrast to what he was saying just weeks later, um, where he ramped up conspiracy theories and was, was full bore in the the camp of, of the, the fact that the election uh, was not going to turn in his favor, uh, Beata.
1: That is fascinating that we now know he wanted to hold a press conference to tout this. Um, but, Sean, I do want to play a bit of what Trump was saying in public just a few weeks after that meeting in April of 2020. Take a listen.
0: The mail ballots, they cheat, OK? People cheat. Mail ballots are a very dangerous thing for this country because they're cheaters. They go and collect them. They're fraudulent in many cases.
1: And, Sean, that was just a sample of what he said. There was a lot more of this kind of rhetoric.
2: Right. The rhetoric um, escalated and and, uh, exponentially, really. Uh, So quietly in the weeks before uh, it started to escalate, you had him uh, acknowledging uh, factual information from from his briefers. So that's why uh, we're told the special counsel's office may be examining this meeting because of what it says about Trump's mindset and how he absorbed very factual information that was reiterated to him and which remained true on the election day. Some of these same protections are the reason why uh, U.S. officials declared the election the most secure in, in U.S. history, beyond
1: Yeah, so, Evan, what does this mean for Jack Smith's investigations into Trump's actions?
3: Well, a couple of things we can draw from this. Uh, One of the things is just the the sheer breadth of this investigation. This is an investigation that's reaching way back into February of of 2020. uh, And we know that the uh, special counsel has been really focused on trying to understand what the Trump what what the former president uh, seemed to believe what he was being told by his experts, and then what he was being told by his non-experts. These are people who were telling him that uh, the uh, invest that the the election was stolen by Venezuela, by Italian satellites, by Chinese hacking. So that's what. You know, if you're the prosecutors, that's what you want to you want to focus on to try to determine whether he really believed this stuff or whether this was all part of the, 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 the act that the former president was engaged in uh, as a way to overturn the election.
1: And this is coming as we're waiting to hear from the grand jury. Uh, Evan, I do want you to weigh in on new exclusive C- reporting from CNN on new uh, thousands of documents related to Rudy Giuliani. Explain the significance there.
3: Well, yeah, this is uh, reporting from uh, Paul Reed, and and this is only on Sunday that the special counsel was able to get their hands on uh, these thousands of pages of documents uh, that were in the possession of Bernie Carrick. He was working alongside Rudy Giuliani uh, in this whole period where they were trying to uh, find alleged fraud. And this has been withheld. Really, this the the special the, uh, the the January 6th investigation on Capitol Hill had sought this, but he had never turned these over, claiming that they were privileged. Well, now. Uh, as a result of some litigation from a couple of uh, election workers in Georgia, uh, these documents are now uh, in the hands of the investigators. And they, again, they only got it on Sunday. It really tells us that there's so much more work that they're doing behind the scenes, even, uh, Biana, if we expect that the grand jury is going to be sitting tomorrow, perhaps here in Washington. They tend to, to, to sit on th- Tuesdays and Thursdays. And an, inv- and, a, and, a, and an indictment could come any day. Uh, it appears certainly a lot of work still left to be done by this uh, investigative team, Biana.
1: And more information we continue to learn by the day. Uh, Sean Lingus and Evan Perez, great reporting. Thank you. Thanks. I'd like to bring in my panel, Alyssa Farragriffin, Griffin, Tom Dupree, and Bakari Sellers. Great to see all of you. So Alyssa, I'm curious to get your response to this new reporting, because you worked in the White House around this time. Did you notice a shift in the former president's attitude from praising election security to all of a sudden doubting it just a few weeks later?
4: This was remarkable to hear because I'm familiar with that meeting, and I know there were others where former CISA Chris Krebs had briefed the former president about just how secure American elections were and the many steps that had been taken to put us in a place where we could truly trust the institution of elections. But it was when, um, about, I would say, April or May of 2020 kind of the height of COVID and also the former president's poll numbers began to plummet, that he started raising doubts about mail-in voting. And I actually remember being in an Oval Office meeting about that time where the campaign called the president. And I was sitting there and he they basically said, stop casting doubt on mail-in voting. You're going to depress your own voter turnout. Um, So, I mean, I don't want to try too hard to get into the mind of Donald Trump, but I think a motivating factor in this entire election myth big lie was the fact that he for the first time realized he might lose and he wanted to start paving the way for how he would say he didn't truly lose.
1: Yeah, and this all speaks to the issue of intent, because if he was briefed on these details, seemed to be proud of them, actually wanted to hold a press conference, what happened in those next few weeks that changed his mind? And about timing, Tom, what do you make of the the timing and the difference between the, the nine months here before the election and the change in the president's tone and view on election integrity?
5: Right. Well, the fact that nine months elapse, I don't think is going to be hugely significant to the jury. In other words, if Jack Smith can persuade the jury that Trump genuinely thought our elections were secure at the beginning of 2020, it's unlikely his opinion would have changed by the end of 2020. And look, I think what's significant here is that although we may not want to get into the mind of Donald Trump, there are going to be some jurors in Washington, D.C., if he is indicted, who will be asked to get into the mind of Donald Trump and figure out whether or not he genuinely believed this election was tainted by fraud or not. And so I think this evidence that this cybersecurity, Security meeting will go a long way. And it will help Jack Smith show that President Trump knew or should have known that this election was not, in fact, tainted by fraud, at least to the extent that it could have resulted in a different outcome.
1: And Bakari, to that point, after the 2020 election, the Department of Homeland Security released this statement saying, quote, the November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. We know subsequently that Chris Krebs had been fired after that. Uh, but the statement was, we now know, based on the exact systems that Trump had praised during this 2020 election. So what do you make of that?
6: Look, I think that the actual firing and the retaliation is something that uh, Jack Smith and the, and the grand jury will take note of. This meeting, though, I'm not so certain that it's going to, to go a long way in, in convincing someone that a crime was committed. I understand the fact that you have to prove intent or mens rea. I just don't think you get there by proving that Donald Trump is not smart or, or he's not a smart man. If that was a the case, then you can indict half the United States Senate. So I don't think that's going to go far. But I do believe that the treasure trove of documents from Rudy Giuliani, when you start turning over people's emails, when you start tr- turning over people's notes, um, text messages, etc., that's going to go a lot further than proving Donald, Donald Trump just doesn't believe in facts. I mean, uh, that, for me, doesn't really hold a, a great deal of weight. Firing someone for telling the truth, that retaliation, maybe... That sounds more like a civil employment game than anything else. But the treasure trove of documents from Rudy Giuliani definitely has to start getting Donald Trump nervous because what you notice on indictments, people start they start snitching up. They always snitch up on the top target. And that's what we're seeing here today. You know, whether or not Meadows speaks or Giuliani speaks, all of those individuals snitching up is going to have a detrimental effect on Donald Trump.
1: Alyssa, do you agree? I mean, the, this treasure trove of documents actually came way of Bernie Carrick, who was advising the administration, the former president's administration there and his team. What do you make of that news?
4: Yeah, and I, th- I think that Bakari is right. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, there's many folks who are deeply loyal to Donald Trump. But at the end of the day, if they're risking incriminating themselves, I think they're going to end up cooperating. I think it's still very much an open question where Mark Meadows is in this investigation, uh, where others, and the fact that at this point in time, we don't know if anyone else has received a target letter. I think that that indicates that there are people cooperating uh, with the grand jury and trying to help the special counsel. And that, that spells a lot of trouble for Donald Trump.
1: Alyssa, I also want you to weigh in on this exchange uh, that the former president had with Sean Hannity. I know you don't want to go down the rabbit hole of trying to get inside his head, but here's what he said at a town hall just last week.
2: Will you look, encourage your voters, based on the system we have, to ha- go along with the system of early voting and voting by mail? Because I, I, I think if you don't, you it's a big mistake. No, no,
0: no. I will. But those ballots get lost also, Sean. A lot of bad things happen to those ballots also. They're sent in early and all of a sudden, where are they? Bad, look, we have very corrupt elections.
1: So Trump is encouraging mail-in ballots, yet continuing to still sow doubt. Alyssa, how are other Republican candidates responding to this?
4: Well, I don't know that other Republican candidates are weighing in, but everyone around Donald Trump who knows how you win elections has been trying to get him to stop attacking mail-in voting because it, again, depresses his own turnout. Donald Trump does decently well with senior citizens, who, by the way, are a voting block that largely votes by mail-in voting. I even felt like Sean Hannity was kind of trying to tee this softball up for him at the end of the day, it kind of raises two questions for me. I'm not entirely convinced that Donald Trump is running because of some grand vision for the future of the country. I think he's running to avoid indictment and potential jail time. He's just hoping to get enough votes, but also he's trying to tee this up for if he loses again, how, what is his excuse going to be for why he didn't? And it's kind of the January 6th story all over again. He can't lose. The problem is with the system, despite the fact that we know it's, we have extremely secure elections.
1: And, Tom, uh, we heard from Melissa bringing up Mark Meadows, asking where is he in all of this. Uh, We're learning that federal prosecutors are interested in a specific text exchange where he apparently joked about Trump's election claims. The Washington Post is reporting this, that Meadows wrote to a White House lawyer that his son, Atlanta-area attorney Blake Meadows, had been probing possible fraud and had found only a handful of possible votes cast in dead voters' names, far short of what Trump was alleging. The lawyer teasingly responded that perhaps Meadows' son could locate the thousands of votes Trump would need to win the election. What do you make of the then White House chief of staff joking about election fraud?
5: Well, the first thing I would make of it is if Mark Meadows, in fact, is cooperating with the special counsel and is flipped, I would be very concerned if I were the Trump defense team. Um, And look, Meadows has been suspiciously silent uh, for the last few months, and I think there is a good chance, given that he may face potential exposure, that he is cooperating with the special counsel. As far as that text exchange go, I mean, it's been remarkable in this case as it's unfolded to see how so many of these behind-closed-door exchanges, often exchanged very casually, may turn out to have very significant implications. I mean, here, the obvious implication is that the president's chief of staff, knew full well that they didn't have remotely sufficient evidence to change the outcome in any state, let alone the multiple states that President Trump would have needed in order to stay in office. So from the special counsel's perspective, it's kind of a gift from God and that he can go before the jury and say, look, these guys are telling, saying one thing publicly, but behind closed doors, here's what they truly believe.
1: Bakari, what do you think of this text? Significant for the special counsel's investigation?
6: Well, first of all, if I'm Mark's, Mark Meadows' son, I'm like, thanks, Dad, for including me in this federal investigation. But the fact is, I, I think that we're, we're making a good point. If you if you tie in this text message to an overt act, if Mark Meadows knew that there wasn't enough votes to overturn, if, he, if they knew that there was no fraud perpetrated in, in some grand scheme, but then went out and helped Donald Trump orchestrate fake electors, or he helped make phone calls to pressure people into find finding new votes, etc., then you have a criminal case against Mark Meadows and you have a criminal exposure. That's how those two things tie in together. It's not just the intent, but it's also the overt act that is made. And we'll see if they have both of them.
1: All right, panel, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you all for your time. We appreciate it. Well, we're monitoring what's becoming a very active night in Israel. It's after 11 p.m. there and protests, well, they're still going strong. CNN is live in the middle of it all. Plus, the Texas governor defying a federal request and keeping a water barrier in place designed to deter migrants. But is it working? Plus, another CNN exclusive. What's next for Ukraine? As the country now admits that it's counteroffensive is behind schedule. See you in court, Mr. President. That's the response from Texas Governor Greg Abbott today as he officially defied a Justice Department request to remove floating barriers from the Rio Grande River on the southern border. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is at the White House with more on President Biden's response, but we'll start on the border in Eagle Pass, Texas, where CNN's Rosa Flores is live for us. So, Rosa, how is Governor Abbott justifying this decision?
7: Well, Governor Abbott is saying that he has sovereign authority, that the state of Texas has sovereign authority under the U.S. and Texas constitutions. Now, here's what his defiance looked like on the Rio Grande. Take a look. These are the buoys that are in question. They are four feet in diameter, and they are at the center of this controversy, and they're at the center of this Rio Grande River, the international boundary between the U.S. and Mexico. There are multiple treaties that govern this waterway, and Mexico has been considered about these buoys because they're wondering if it's in their territory. Now, according to the U.S. State Department, the state of Texas did not consult with the federal government before deploying these buoys, and they also did not obtain permits. That, of course, raised a lot of questions about uh, what Texas was doing and Texas not following the law. There, There are laws and regulations that govern this waterway, and Texas just went ahead and did that. Now, the latest regarding the U.S. DOJ is that we've learned that the U.S. DOJ DOJ has filed suit against the state of Texas. We also just learned from the Texas Attorney General's office that they are doubling down. They say that they are ready to defend Texas's right to have these border buoys. So Biana, we're going to have to see what happens. It's a Texas size showdown here between the U.S. DOJ and Texas.
1: It's not the first lawsuit that Texas has filed against the the government, but as promised, uh, Priscilla, as we just heard from Rosa, the Justice Department, has filed its lawsuit. So where do things go from here?
8: Well, they're going to see each other in court over this issue of the floating barriers along the Texas-Mexico border. But the big picture here is that this has been a delicate political issue for the White House. President Biden has come under criticism for his border policies from the left and the right. And there's been this ongoing feud, especially with Texas Governor Abbott over the handling of the Texas-Mexico border. Now, just to give you some context here, this was an operation that, that the Texas governor launched in 2021. And over the course of the last two years there have been internal discussions within the administration as they watched what he was doing along the texas mexico border when it came to migrants and then also sending migrants to democratic-led cities but it wasn't until last week that we saw the justice department threaten this legal action against abbott really escalating this feud and now creating a showdown between abbott and biden now the white house is calling the actions by abbott both dangerous and unlawful Take a listen to what the White House press secretary said just moments ago.
5: What you see
1: the the governor doing is dangerous and unlawful, and it's actually hurting the process. It's hurting the process of what we're trying to do. And instead of wanting to, or undermining, I should say, instead of coming to the table and trying to figure out a way to work together, uh, he continues to do this really uh, cruel uh, unjust, inhumane uh, ways of moving forward with a with a system that has been broken for decades.
8: Now, when I've talked to officials about this, it's not only what they see as mistreatment of migrants because of the actions of the Texas governor, but also how it interferes with federal government operations, agents on the ground already facing challenges and difficulties with Texas troopers who historically they have worked really well with. So all of this coming to a head, it'll be in court and we'll hear from both sides on how they move forward with these floating barriers. Vianna.
1: Of course, we'll continue to cover this story and follow any developments. Priscilla Alvarez at the White House and Rosa Flores at the border. Thank you both. Well, CNN is also on the ground this hour in Israel. The vote today that led to this protest en masse throughout the country and why this scene could play out for some time to come. We are back with our world lead and protests erupting in Israel today as the far-right government voted to strip power from the Supreme Court. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who pushed the bill, argues that the Supreme Court no longer represents the will of the people. But opponents point out the Supreme Court is the only check on Netanyahu and his government. CNN's Fred Pleitgen is in Jerusalem for us. So Fred, it is 11 p.m. there, nearly midnight in the country, and these scenes are not letting up. What are you seeing around you?
9: Well, you're absolutely right, Biana. They certainly aren't letting up. If you look around me, we can pan around a little bit. You can see that there are still a lot of protesters actually out in the street here. The cops actually just came out here a couple of minutes ago before we went to air, and we're trying to clear the street. You can see there's still protesters going through. They're trying to open it to traffic again. But really this junction, which is a major one here in Jerusalem, has been held by the protesters for the better part of the day. And there are some pretty ugly scenes, Biana. Um, I'd say about an hour and a half ago when there was the police that was charging the protesters with water cannon trucks also lifting people up uh, off the streets and carrying them away obviously the protesters vowing to return and not to let up and to continue to fight against this uh, judicial overhaul bill which has happened now as you mentioned it is already being appealed not just by the opposition but by some other groups as well who want essentially the supreme court to say that that bill needs to be null and void now of course if that does happen then you do have a major constitutional crisis here in this country, which doesn't really have a written constitution at all, um, if that happens. Because, of course, the crux of these laws that are now under consideration, the first one, of course, has already been waived through the Knesset today, is to curtail the powers of the Supreme Court. And that is what these people are fighting against. As you mentioned, they are saying that the Supreme Court really the only real check on power of the government here in this country.
1: And ironically, this now goes to the Supreme Court to ultimately decide here, and we don't know what's going to happen after they do. Um, Fred, uh, just a few days ago, I spoke to Israeli President Isaac Herzog after his trip to Washington, where he met with President Biden and spoke before a joint session of Congress. Now, he has acted as the main mediator on this issue, and I asked him about the hundreds of Air Force reservists who threaten not to show up for duty if this bill passed. Listen to part of his response.
10: I hope that the issue of um, not serving, not, not going on reserve duty, I really truly, I said it on numerous occasions, should be out of the political debate. I know I'm a bit perhaps naive at this stage, but I sincerely hope it will fade away. <laughs>
1: And Fred, it has not faded away. In fact, the number of reservists, most significantly Air Force reservists, threatening not to serve has only grown. How is the Netanyahu government responding to what some say could be a national security issue?
9: Yeah, they're saying that it's outrageous. They're saying that uh, these people, they do need to continue to serve the country. It was quite interesting because it's not just the Netanyahu government, but also the, the military leadership who said, look, these need to be separate issues and people do need to continue to serve because, of course, the unity of the Israeli defense forces is so key here for this country. But I do think, Diana, that it is an extremely important question and certainly one that was also very important among the protesters here today. And we did see, actually, a lot of reservists who were at this protest the way, some of them actually wrestling with the police, to try and stage a sit-in here who we're wearing reservist t-shirts who said, look, they really don't know whether or not they still want to serve or will be able uh, to serve a country that is as deeply divided as this one is right now. It's a huge question. It's not only about reservists also. I was also speaking to a family who said their daughters are about to go serve in the military. Of course, we know that there's mandatory military service for men and women here in this country. And they said, look, it's also a big issue for us. The unity right now uh, and certainly the strength of the IDF is something that's on everybody's mind. And that also transcends the questions of the reservists as well.
1: Yeah, these protests not letting up, entering 29 weeks now. Uh, Fred Pleitgen in Jerusalem, thank you so much, and stay safe. Well, Ukraine is taking credit for today's drone strikes on Moscow and Russian annexed Crimea. This after Ukraine says Russia targeted its grain stocks on the Danube River overnight and continued attacks on Odessa, where Russian missiles damaged at least 25 historical monuments over the weekend, including Odessa's biggest cathedral. The city's mayor says the cathedral now is structurally unsound. CNN's Alex Marquardt spoke exclusively with Ukraine's defense minister about the escalating violence.
11: As Russia has pounded Odessa, so too has Ukraine stepped up strikes on Russian-occupied Crimea. At least five attacks in the past week, including a drone strike today on a Russian ammunition depot. Are you escalating your attacks against the peninsula? I would not say that we're escalating something.
10: We're fighting for our freedom. This weekend, we
11: sat down for a wide-ranging exclusive TV interview with Ukraine's defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, who admitted that while Ukraine's counteroffensive is behind schedule, Ukrainian strikes deep into Crimea and beyond will become the norm.
10: It means that we will use every options to hit their uh, fuel depot, ammunition depot, the artillery systems. It was rare to see
11: Ukraine claim responsibility for the attack on the Kerch bridge. Is it your goal
10: to permanently disable the bridge? It's normal tactics to ruin logistic lines of your enemy, to stop the um, options to get more ammunition, to get more fuel, to get more food, etc., etc. That's why we will uh, use these tactics against them.
11: Russia's latest attack in the Odessa region early on Monday morning was the closest they had struck to NATO territory. Drones destroying a grain hangar right near the border with Romania, the latest in a series of Russian attacks on food storage. So this approach is
10: absurd, but it's real. And that's why it's a new evidence that they are really country who are a real terrorists. They're a terrorist state. Have you been surprised at how ferocious these attacks have been? Honestly, not. Because uh, after the February of last year, it's very difficult to surprise me. After almost two months, Ukraine's highly
11: anticipated counteroffensive has produced few gains. Russian troops are on the offensive in the east, while Ukrainian progress is modest, at best, in the south.
10: I think that it's a uh, misperception that... Every counteroffensive should be quick. We had a time to prepare our armed forces with our partners, but they also had the time to make security zone with the trenches, with their mines. You knew you were going to face these tough Russian defenses.
11: So is this a question of needing more equipment, or is it a question uh,
10: of Ukrainian forces not necessarily fighting in the way that they should be? It's a question of the ammunition, of the artillery shells, of the more artillery systems. It's a question that we have a very long uh, battlefield line also. And we have against us big quantity of uh, enemies. Do you
11: acknowledge, though, that the plan is behind schedule? Yes. This week, Reznikov says, Ukraine owes the Pentagon a report on how the highly controversial American cluster munitions that were sent to Ukraine have been used against Russian troops. Are you able to say where the
10: cluster munitions have been most effective? They will be most effective, especially against their artillery systems. And also they will be efficient against their armed uh, personal carriers or infantry fighting vehicles. They will be good against their uh, infantry in the fields.
11: And, Byanar, Resnikov told me that he believes those cluster munitions are four times more effective or four times more lethal than the standard artillery round. I also asked the defense minister if there's any progress in getting uh, that American long-range missile that they've been asking for for so long. It's got a range of around 200 miles, 300 kilometers. It's called an ATACMS. He said there has been no movement on that front. He thinks that the U.S. is waiting to see how Ukraine uses uh, recently acquired British and and French cruise missiles. Uh, But he is certainly hoping that they will be coming soon. He says that there are Mm. plenty of Russian targets in uh, Russian-occupied areas in Ukraine. Yana?
1: Interesting interview. Sobering to hear him say how little surprises him at this stage in the war as well. Alex Marquardt reporting in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you. Well, next, the move by Republicans in Alabama that defies a Supreme Court order. I'll speak with one of the state Democrats calling them out. In our politics lead, Alabama state Republicans are defying Supreme Court orders, refusing to redraw a congressional map that adds a second majority black district or, quote, something quite close to it that better correlates with the state's 27 percent black population. The new map includes one congressional district with a 50 percent black voting age population and a second district with roughly 40 percent. Let's bring in Alabama State Representative Chris England. Uh, Chris, you worked on the redistricting committee and were opposed to this new map. I asked you during the break if this yeah. decision surprised you, and you said sadly no. Explain why.
12: Um, Alabama's very familiar and comfortable with the federal courts telling us what to do. And uh, I figured we would take... Initially, I was maybe naively optimistic at the beginning of the week that we were going to take the alternate path this time, considering that we had an alternative plan that we offered, um, the Senator, uh, the figure's congressional plan that fit the VRA, matched the court order, and followed state's traditional redistricting principles, and we could all come together, pass that map, satisfy the court, and then move on to uh, um, having an election in the fall but again, Alabama does what Alabama does. Um, and this process itself appeared to be scripted. Uh, it wasn't transparent at all to the point where the maps that eventually did pass did not withstand any public scrutiny or input. And ultimately we passed a map that many people didn't see until Friday morning, maybe an hour or so before they voted on it. So here we are today. Uh, I'm, a map that openly defies the Supreme court's order and will likely end up back in court.
1: Yeah. Well, this is being appealed to a federal court and we now know that a hearing was scheduled for mid August. What are you hoping that Mm -hmm. court does here? You've said that you believe this map was drawn directly to get the issue back before the Supreme court.
12: Yeah. um, I I hope that the court does what it does for Alabama and saves us from ourselves. Um, And, If you look at the map itself, it's almost like they went through the court order and created a checklist of what we could do wrong and didn't. And it rehashes when they passed the bill. The bill itself actually rehashes arguments that were rejected by the Supreme Court. And if you look, as as everyone keeps repeating, it was a majority minority district or something close to it. Well, 39 percent, 39.9 percent is not close to it. So it's clear that this does not create the opportunity and also does not comply with the court order.
1: And the state is backing its decision here thus far. Uh, Your colleague, Republican State Senator Steve Livingston, said that he heard from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy about this new map. And he said McCarthy told Livingston he wanted to keep his majority. What's your response to that?
12: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Alabama citizens would, would prefer that we follow the Supreme court order. Um, and it's interesting that a party that talks about law and order only, it only matters when it's convenient. And for months now, people have been telling us it's abide by the court's order. For example, in the, in a Dobbs case, abide by the court's order. But when the court issues an order that's inconvenient, we just ignore it. And then, Play political games with our constituency and use our constituency basically as collateral damage to maintain a majority and have a process that's supposed to be organic to Alabama controlled by people who aren't even here. So, again, uh, it's it's frustrating as a a black legislator who represents a district that was created by a court order many years ago for the same reason to have Alabama now uh, basically defy a court order to maintain status quo.
1: Quickly, in this final minute with you, the Alabama attorney general says the legislature's new plan complies with the Voting Rights Act by, quote, fairly applying traditional districting principles that were blessed by the Supreme Court. He seems to think they have legal ground here.
12: Um, yeah, he did as well. Uh, but every argument that was made was rejected. And we've adopted a losing strategy to go back to the same Supreme Court that has ordered us to do the exact opposite. Hmm. And it's interesting because it only appears to me that the only change in the argument is we're going to try to remind you that we're we're supposed to be all conservatives here, all Republicans, and maybe you should take another look at this. It's almost like speed limit being 70. We're going to go 100 and then ask you to change the speed limit to 100. And this is essentially what we're doing. But I don't think any court, whether it be the District Court or the Supreme Court of the United States, is going to look too kindly to a state legislature blatantly disregarding their order.
1: We're about to find out. Alabama State Representative Chris England, thank you for your time. New drone video shows authorities back at the scene in the Giglow Beach today as they investigate the serial murders in Long Island, New York. The priority for crews trying to sort through an overwhelming amount of evidence. In the national lead, a turning point in the Gilgo Beach murders investigation involving suspected serial killer Rex Hewerman. Authorities are drowning in evidence as they search through the suspect's New York home from top to bottom. Police dogs and ground-penetrating radar are on site looking for clues or items that could be linked to the victims. CNN's John Miller is following this case for us. So, John, any word on what officials are looking for, either in the house or in the backyard?
13: In the backyard, they're looking for either additional victims or perhaps property from some of his victims uh, or souvenirs he may have buried. You know, the ground-penetrating radar is supposed to show them anomalies underground that could be human remains or could be um, uh, property or things that just don't show up in the rest of the ground. So they dug up some spots, um, but they have a lot of work to do. The evidence they found in the house, they have to bring to the medical examiner to swab to see if trace DNA can be matched to any of the victims um, and then possibly to show those items to family members of the victims to say this watch this ring this item of clothing do you recognize this as something unique that you would remember belonging to your sister or your daughter
1: and we know police are also looking at the suspect's South Carolina property in Chester County the news and reporter newspaper says there's a search warrant over possible trophies the accused killer may have stashed there what more do we know about this
13: well, so that is a piece of property he owns. He's got some land there. It's adjacent to his brother's place. It's where they recovered the green truck that was uh, the the very thing that connected his name to this case. And what they're wondering is, are there things that he might have brought down there that are related to these crimes, or are there things that may be related to other crimes uh, that he may have that we that we may not be aware of that happened between. Long Island in South Carolina.
1: Just chilling. John Miller, thank you so much.
13: You're welcome. Thanks.
1: Well, next, see the dramatic heart stopping moves to save a baby locked in a car in 100 degree heat. First, CNN's Wolf Blitzer with a look at what's up next in the Situation Room. Wolf, always great to see you.
13: And, and vice versa. Thank you, Bianca. I'll get reaction from Republican presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson to his failure, at least so far, to qualify for the first GOP presidential debate in a month. Is the former Arkansas governor feeling pressure to quit the race? As Senator Mitt Romney is now urging GOP megadonors to pull funding from what he describes as non-viable White House hopefuls. That, much more coming up right at the top of the hour here in the Situation Room.
1: And we are back with our national lead. Video making the rounds on social media today shows a quick-thinking response after an infant was locked inside a car in the sweltering Texas heat. Police in Harlingen, a south Texas city near the border, say a mother and father accidentally locked their car in a grocery store parking lot with their baby still inside last Wednesday. Well, the group, including the father, broke the front windshield before crawling inside to get the child out. The high-temperature Wednesday, get this, was 101 degrees in Harlingen. Fortunately, first responders say the baby was OK. Just horrifying. Defense attorneys for the man c- accused of killing four University of Idaho students face a deadline today to give an alibi for their client. Brian Koberger is accused of the four deadly stabbings last November. Investigators say DNA linked to Koberger was found on the sheath of a knife that is believed to be the murder weapon. He's set to go on trial this October. Well, that is it for us for this hour. You can follow me on Twitter at Bianna Golodriga or follow the show. Why don't you do both at The Lead? If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room.